Surely we give money to Mohi, but thank you for giving so we can make videos. I'm just kind of kidding. Uh, my name is Ben Seaman. I'm a lead pastor at Rockham Christian Church. Uh, we're in week three of Hero Maker. Uh, please stick around if this is your first time with us. We're not that weird. <laughs> uh, but we're looking at how Jesus lays out a blueprint to develop other people. Uh, Jesus didn't say, I'm done. I defeated death, sin, uh, and the devil. Good luck. He gave us a blueprint. And so in this uh, series, Hero Maker, we talked about how a hero maker thinks. Now, this is great leadership development. So if you're an employer, if you're over people, steal the stuff from Jesus. Preachers do it all the time. So how a hero maker thinks is, here's a problem or here's um, something I can do. Instead of um, me being the one that has to do everything, let me bring other people along with me uh, in the journey. A hero thinks, or in the corporate world, we'd say a doer thinks I have to do everything because that's what they pay me to do. No, you are a hero maker. How does a hero maker think? Well, Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that we're supposed to have the same mindset of Christ. Like we can think like God. Sure. How do we think like God? We give our lives away. We give our lives away. And Jesus, who was God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but became like one of us. And how much of our lives, how much of our career <laughs> is making a name for ourselves, right? Jesus, who was God, um, decided like, nope, I need to become one of them to die for them uh, because a sacrifice that will be forgiven by God has to be a like-for-like -like transaction. That's why the whole animal thing never really worked out. You must become what you want to save. So how does a hero maker see people? A hero maker sees people not as they are, but the redemptive potential of what they could be. Right? Should they follow Jesus? Should they um, accept the gospel, be baptized publicly as a demonstration of that acceptance, and go crazy in love with God and their submission to God to change the world upside down? A hero looks at somebody and judges them as they are, which is what religion uh, does. The whole purpose of religion, the whole purpose of the law, as the writers of the Bible talk about, is to tell us we're not good enough. But like, I don't know that we need religion to tell us that we're good enough, right? Jackson Brown, one of my favorite musicians, can't believe it. This is what, welcome to a preacher. This is what's going on inside of my head. There's a lyric that he has, like, don't remind me of my failures. I've not forgotten them. We don't need religion to tell us how terrible we are. We, we kind of already know that, right? But the gospel does not treat us as what? Our sins deserve because Jesus comes to save us and redeem us and, and looks at us as what we could be should we follow Jesus with our lives? But a hero goes, looks at that person, and here's a, here's a word we like to use a lot in religion, judges them, which is to say compartmentalize them, right? Like our sock and underwear and t-shirt drawer, this goes here, open it up, put it in, shut it, now I can move on because I feel good about how I place other people in my life. A hero maker sees people not as they are, but what they could be. And so today we're going to talk about how in the world does a hero maker live? Sort of like the three crazy people in the bumper video. What now can we do? And I'm going to tell you uh, what we can do. And so here's the big idea for today, friends. This is critical to our mission of inviting people to journey with Jesus. We need a shift. Living like a hero maker requires a shift from information sharing to life sharing. Let me say that again. Write this down. If you're watching online, take a screenshot of this. Put this in your phone. We need a shift 
from information sharing to life sharing. So much of, um, I think, our faith in the church world is we base Christian maturity by how well you know the Bible. And to use a life group analogy, uh, and and we call them life groups. Maybe you went to a church, called them small groups, community groups, doesn't matter, groups of people that get together to do life and read God's word. We, in the church, I'm afraid in the church, we've made it to where like, there's maybe like, let's say in a church, there's like 10 phenomenal Bible teachers, right? That's great. Awesome. But we say, I can't leave that group. I really like so-and-so. They just know God's word and it just oozes out of them. And I learned so much. Jesus looks at that church and says, that's not, that's not a mature church. That's a church that's not bearing fruit. That's a church that begins and ends with those 10 phenomenal Bible teachers. Jesus does not ask us to only share information. He invites us to share our lives with one another. I would beg and ask you of any small group that you've been a part of for any length of time, how's the vulnerability in that group? And a simple way to answer this, and you kind of get what I'm saying, it's just an illustration. Do you know the middle names of the people in your life group? Like, in other words, how vulnerable are you with them? And we'll talk more about that later. A hero maker, we have to make a shift. And from sort of uh, dwindling Christianity down to knowing stuff about God, but then we refuse to share our life with one another. Discipleship is not meeting in a building with the word attached to it one day a week for 45 to 50 minutes and then going to a life group for 45 to 50 minutes. It's something much deeper than that. Here's a question out of left field. How many of you like math? You can raise your hand. You don't have a mask on your hand. How many of you like math? If you're watching online, give me a thumbs up. God bless you. I don't understand you, but God created you for a reason. Uh, There's a mathematician uh, that I discovered on the internet where all good things have been found. I'm going to butcher his name, Leonardo Fabiacci. Uh, Just just give me some grace, okay? Uh, If you yell loud enough, people at home can hear you. So that's a win, right? Anyways, doesn't matter. He's a mathematician in the 1200s. He was asked this question. Uh, about a pair of rabbits. Here it is. If you put a pair of rabbits in a room and every month that pair of rabbits produced another pair of rabbits, I'm already bored reading this, and within a month, each new pair of rabbit produced another pair of rabbits and so on, at the end of the year, how many rabbits do you have? I'm like, I don't know. How romantic do they want to be? Who are they listening to, right? He went to work and said, at the end of one year, you would have 233 pairs of rabbits, which is about, or exactly, 466 individual rabbits. Over, after two and a half years, upwards of two and a half million rabbits. That's a lot of reproducing. Now, what do rabbits and Jesus have to do with discipleship? I don't know. It's a good story. They have everything to do with discipleship. The expectation that Jesus has is not that we become Christian and we step out of the waters of baptistry and go, okay, that was good. I'm done. No. When you step out of the waters of baptistry, my friends, you step into ministry. The expectation that Jesus has for his church, global church and local church throughout the world, is that they would reproduce themselves and other people who got to think of intentionality because your time is valuable. Who will develop other people? 
So this notion of, I really love my life group leader. I really love my Bible teacher. I mean, I don't know who they, like, okay, that's, that's codependency for one. Th- th- that's fine. That's great that like we need people who love the word and know how to teach it. But more than that, we need people who know the word, love how to teach it, and can replicate it in other people who can do the exact same thing. If we do not do that, the growth begins and ends with those 10 people, and we're not fulfilling the Great Commission. We will only ever be a church of two or 300, however much we were running before the pandemic. And that's not what Jesus is after. Jesus is not after big, small, or medium-sized churches. He's after two things for churches, what he prayed for, unified churches and churches that would produce fruit. How we produce fruit is 187.9.3 repeating, depending on if we want to invest our lives in other people. If we want to think like Jesus, see like Jesus, and live like Jesus. And let me read it again for the third time. Here's the Great Commission. This is the blueprint, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Let me just pause right there. This is what I think about. Welcome to my brain. Isn't it interesting in the age of social media and people screaming at each other, that the most powerful person in the world, Jesus, had nothing to defend. That he was quiet in front of Pilate, and he let the religious leaders, so what, what, what we, we might say like, like his Sunday school teachers, the Jew, like the Jewish leaders who taught him the Torah, at the end of Jesus' life said, we want, we want the, the, the convict we want you to crucify Jesus. Just think about that for a second. The most powerful man in the world had nothing to defend. And how much do we spend our lives making a name for ourselves? If we don't have the right title, the right salary, the right recognition, we somehow feel invalidated. And that's, that's an identity because the truest form of who you are is not your job, not in your motherhood, your fatherhood, uh, being a student, a child. It's in the fact that you are the beloved son and daughter of the most high God. I've got all the authority. So this is what I want you to do with the church. Go and make disciples or apprentices or life group leaders or Bible teachers, you fill in the blank, doesn't matter, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Remember what I said at the beginning of the series, the only two times the Holy Spirit, or sorry, the Trinity is, um, shows up in the scriptures are in baptisms. The first one is with Jesus. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. We cannot teach people to obey Jesus if we don't know the gospels, Right? The thing that should upset us about people not following is not the Constitution, it's the Sermon on the Mount. Do we know the Sermon on the Mount from King Jesus? The greatest sermon ever given, definitely the greatest TED Talk ever given. We can't disciple people if if we don't know what Jesus said. We end up relying on different resources. Jesus says, I've taught you everything, learn it. Follow me and share it with other people. In week one, I gave everyone that was here, we, we give everyone here a coffee filter. And I asked you to write your name at the bottom of it, and then uh, like three or four names of people that have invested in you over your lifetime, which is to say that you are the result of their uh, relationship and their investment in you. I asked you to flip it or turn it around and put your name at the top and three or four names under your name. And I wanted to ask you the question and give you the charge. Would you, in 2021, 
give your life away to those three or four people? Would you invest in those people? I have my names. I'm not going to share with you because we're on the internet and they might be watching, but I have my names. I'm not going to be a pastor that uh, encourages you to do something and, and I won't call myself to it. I have those people. Uh, half of them aren't even Jesus followers yet. So yeah, it's kind of intimidating. I'm asking you, how's it going? How's it going? I'm that annoying person. How's it going, church? I'm not up here for my health. I'm not up here to preach a nice sermon series that, you know, we should disciple people. That's a great Christian Hallmark card. No, our God said, you will do this. If you don't want to be a, if you want to avoid the branch conversation in John where you're thrown into the fire, you will do, you will do this. I thought Jesus just wanted to hug everybody. Well, not yet. It's in a pandemic, but we do have explicit commandments from Jesus. Church, how's it going? I'm dead serious about this. Why well, I wasn't here for the coffee filter week, so I'm out. No, put them in your phone, okay? I've been a youth pastor for 10 years. You're still doing it. Put it in your phone. Last week, uh, we gave out these magnets. We have a ton left, um, and they're in the back. If you're in-house, you want to grab one on the way out. Have you had your ICNU conversation with those three to five names? I want you to grab one of these if you haven't, and put it on your refrigerator door in your kitchen, because if you're like me, you see that door quite a bit. It's a reminder at least once a week. Talk to those people. Here's what I see in you. I'm not asking you to believe it right now, but I'm asking you to receive it. Here's what I see in you. Here's the God potential that I see in your life. Now, we're going to take it a step further, church, and I'm going to tell you and show you how to shift or move someone from a hero to a hero maker, someone that has been saved by grace, by the blood of Christ, that just kind of goes to church and doesn't have any intentionality with their Christian development, spiritual formation, to having a hunger and a heart to develop other people. I'm going to give you that gift this weekend because Jesus wants you to do it. Now, in Luke 6, 12 through 13, Luke writes, this is before Jesus um, uh, picks his disciples. One of those days, Jesus went to the mountainside to pray and spend the night praying to God. Uh, when morning came, he called the disciples to him, and he chose the 12, whom he also designated uh, as apostles. And I've, I've preached, uh, or I've talked about this verse in weeks past, and I've talked about the importance of spending time in prayer before you go after those folks that you wrote down on your coffee filter, because middle school never really comes out of us. We want to pick our favorites. And spending time in prayer invites the Holy Spirit to say, here are two people that you don't really want to be like involved with. I need you to put them in your circle. Now, what I want to focus on today is the intentionality of what happens when Jesus comes off of that mountain. When you read the New Testament, you ready for this? You're not ready for this. This is going to blow your mind. Jesus's public ministry was three years, 36 months, if I do the math correctly. Even pastors can sometimes multiply. Jesus spent 73% of his 36 months of public ministry with 12 people. Let me say that again, church. Jesus spent 76, 73% of his public ministry with 12 people. And I get it. You're like, Ben, I'll write a name down on a coffee filter so I don't feel guilty. There's no way I'm spending 73% of 2021 with 12 people uh, because I won't have a marriage at the end of the year and my kids will forget my first name, right? I get it. I get it. However, when you talk about pastoral math, there's a direct correlation between vulnerability and time spent with one another. Think about the impact 
the depth of relationship that Jesus had with those 12 people. And sure, yeah, one of those guys was Judas, betrayed him at the end. Think about the depth of relationship Jesus had with those 12 people because 73% of 36 months was spent with only 12 people. I get it's the first century, it's not 2021, but Jesus, like, Jesus didn't build a social media platform. He didn't ask Peter to be like, hey, Peter, I'm going to preach the best sermon ever. Uh, I think theologians or people who write Bibles will call it like the Sermon on the Mount. I want you to pull out your phone and the most tweetable things I say, put that on the Twitter. Peter's like, it's not called the Twitter, okay? It's called Twitter. Jesus didn't do that. He didn't do that. He lived an obscure life, right? Unless you, it, it, not everybody heard about Jesus. Probably after the death and resurrection, probably a lot of people heard about him. But he lived a pretty obscure life. And as corporate Western America would look at Jesus' life, we would probably go, that's not efficient. That's not a great uh, return on investment. I hear that a lot in the corporate world. Yeah, Jesus isn't interested in efficiency all the time. Loving people is not efficient, right? Judas, Judas betrayed him. He poured 36 months into this guy's life, and he betrayed him. If you've never, I'll tell you what, man, one feeling you never want to feel in discipleship is to pour your life into somebody and they like leave the church or they leave your life group and they say horrible things about you, even if they're true or not. It just, it ripped your heart out. Jesus, Jesus, like, I was there. <laughs> I had somebody totally betray me. He totally betray me. You know, it's interesting, of all the events that happened in the Gospels, 46 of those events, guys, Jesus was present with his disciples. So not only did he information share with them, he taught them the Torah, he did life. He shared life with his disciples. Now, with um, the, uh, the gospel writers call it like the crowds, Jesus only spent um, time with the crowds at 17 events. It's like a one to three sort of like ratio. Jesus spent an insane amount of time with 12 people. And we would look at it by our corporate standards and like, that's not an efficient way to do your job, Jesus, right? You imagine um, one of your employees comes to you and says, I've got a great park, uh, product. Here's what we're going to do in the testing phase. And I'm pretty sure it's going to give us a great return on investment. And they show you it and you're like, this is about as minimal, uh, minimalistic as you can be. Yeah, that's sort of Jesus' approach to developing disciples. And it changed, uh, it, it changed the world. Now, this is how he did it. In John chapter 3, verse 22, John writes these words. It's, it's, a, it's a simple verse that if you're reading your Bible in the privacy of your own home, you'd probably just skip it, which I, I, I wouldn't blame you. John tw uh, 3, 22 says, Jesus and his disciples uh, went into the Judean countryside. Here it is, amazing verse, where he spent some time with them. You're like, what's so amazing about that? The idea of spending time with other people is boiled down to this beautiful Greek word uh, called diatribo. All right, on the count of three, I want you to say diatribo with me, all right? It's a fun word, and uh, it's just fun, so let's just do it, and don't leave me hanging. Ready? One, two, three, diatribo. Awesome. The first service was like, was like at a DMV. It was boring. I had to, they had it, it took two tries, right? But you guys are awesome. It means to rub against or to rub off. In this context, it literally means time spent together rubbing off on each other. That's important. That's not a verse that we should just glance over. Now, 
I did tell you um, in the other text that Jesus went up the mountain to pray. Jews did not believe and still don't. They don't believe in a trinity. Right? God would never become one of us. So the concept is very acceptable to Jews for like Moses to go up to a mountain to spend time with God. We like God distant and far away. But God doesn't like to be distant, does he? No, he becomes one of us. He gets so close to us that we can like rub up against him. He, we, we, can, we can bump into him shoulder to shoulder. It's not enough to share information. We have to share our lives with other people. So here's the question. Do you diatribo? Are you doing shoulder-to-shoulder life with other people? When are you going to start doing shoulder-to-shoulder life with other people, with those names that you wrote down, or those people that you've actually been thinking about? This, This is the mission of Jesus. This is the mission of our church. This is why we use journey kinds of conversation. This is the essence, the thesis, the epitome of what it looks like to journey with other people. We diotribo. We do life shoulder to shoulder. It's not enough for a 45-minute church service, not enough for a 60 to 90-minute life group on, you know, midweek. We need to do life together. Jesus has saved us individually, but called us to ourselves corporately to do life with one another. You cannot be a Christian I don't think. It ignore all of the one another passages that Paul talks about. You need other people to actually obey the scriptures. Like if you're not in relationship with other people, you're not obeying the New Testament, right? I'll move on. You get it. Here's some objections that we have that we wrestle with this idea of spending that this amount of time with other people. Ben, I'm not a spiritual giant, right? Uh, To use modern language, I don't that I've heard, especially in youth ministry. I just, I don't know enough about the Bible and kids annoy me, so I don't really want to put those two together, right? And I get it, but it's an easy insecurity to hide behind. Let me remind you in the Ben Seaman translation that Jesus looked at religious people and said, you search the scriptures to find me and I'm right in front of you. And you know what the religious elite did? They murdered Jesus. Don't get it twisted. Yes, theologically, Jesus died for your sins. But historically, religiously, in that moment, even if Jesus wasn't God, the reason why Jesus was murdered is because he claimed equality with God that I am God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is not interested and the most intelligent person in the room at church. He is interested in the most transformed person in the room. And head knowledge is not the only thing that transforms our hearts. It is an aspect of it. Don't, Don't misunderstand me. We need to know the word of God because we need to know Jesus. But it is one aspect of hundreds, thousands of other aspects of what it means to be transformed into the image of Christ. I get it. You're not a spiritual giant. Who among us is? If you think I'm a spiritual giant, let's grab coffee. I'll tell you all of my failings in life, okay? We're just regular people. Let's not be so insecure that we hide behind this mirage, this, this curtain that 
I can't lead a life group. I can't serve in a church because I don't know enough about the Bible. Jesus just said the Old Testament, believe it or not, is not a morality lesson. The Old Testament and the New Testament are about me. To say I don't know enough about the Bible is to say I don't know Jesus. All of the Bibles in the world could burn today and Google could erase any possibility for searching for scripture online, and yet Christianity would not be dead because there's an empty tomb. Let me say that again. Christianity would not be dead because there's an empty tomb. Are we awake today, church? Just me. Okay. All right. I should have had two cups of coffee, but I did work out, so I'm ready to go. The point of Scripture is to be formed by the God of Scripture, which is to say to be formed in the image of Christ. Jesus is not looking for the most intelligent people in the room. Hello, look at the people he called. They're all Jewish dropouts that are going back to their father's trade, which isn't a bad thing. It's just they weren't selected by the premier rabbis of their day. Here's the second and final objection, although I'm sure there's more. We tell ourselves a lot of lies Uh, to avoid the truth of who we really are. We all do it. The second objection is this. Um, I don't have time, Ben. I don't have time. Here's a picture of our pathway. Um, When when Jesus talks about uh, turning heroes into hero makers, remember in Matthew, he says, um, my my, my, my yoke is easy. My, a yoke is a teaching. The way I view scripture or the Torah, the way I see the world, the way I see people, my teaching is, um, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is not something where I can imagine people go, oh gosh, this is something I have to add to my life. You have to put it on the calendar. You have to, you have to meet with people. It, just, it is what it is. But what we're talking about is asking the question, who is already in your rhythm of life? Do you have a coffee shop you go to? Do you have a gym you work out? Do you, have a, um, you, know, do you walk on the rail trails a certain day, a certain time? Uh, do, do you, you know, are your kids active in sports or, or something where other adults are there and you seem to talk about what everyone talks about when we don't know what to talk about? The weather, right? There are people in your natural rhythms of life. Jesus says, hey, what about them? Are you going to do shoulder-to-shoulder life with them? Do, do, do you know if they know me? Is this really about baseball? Is this really about soccer? Is this really about like putting my kid in everything just to like make sure they get to go to a good... Is that really what's going on here, guys? Who is in your natural rhythm of life? Now, let me tell you, right, some application, how to do this, how to take someone from a hero to a hero maker. And for the purpose of this sermon, we, there's so many like, illustrations. And please, if you run a company and you're in charge of developing people, steal this. Pastors steal from Jesus all the time. So here are five conversations you can have with people. If you're watching online, take a screenshot uh, of this photo before it gets taken down. Here's the first conversation. Imagine we're all in a life group. Well, this is basically be like a family reunion, but we're all in a life group and I'm the leader. Imagine if every fall for our eight-week series and every spring that groups meet, if every life group leader in every life group that we have decided, I'm going to give RCC a gift, okay? Every fall and every spring, 
I'm going to, to reproduce one person or a couple so that in the next calendar year or the next school year, they are ready and willing and able to lead another life group who will, intentionality, intentionally set the bar at the beginning of the life group and say, hey, we're going to meet for the fall, but I want to invest my life in you so that by the spring or summer, one or two of you would be able to lead a, a new life group in the next year. The problem in most churches is not that people aren't signing up for life groups. It's like, man, people that visit the church for the first time, it's like the first thing they sign up for. Why? Because we, it's biology, it's psychology, and it's the way God formed us. We want to be with other people. The tension that a lot of churches run into in the block, the stopgap, is there aren't enough leaders yet. And Jesus says, you need to do life shoulder to shoulder with other people. And so here are the five conversations, all right? I'm going to pick on Andrew and Brian on our team. Hey, guys, come here. I'm going to do everything week one. You're going to watch everything. The group will leave, hang back in my house. We'll sit in the living room for about 30 minutes. We'll talk about how it went because I want to be critiqued. I want to know if I have blind spots. Do I talk too much? The answer is yes. I'm not that great of a life group leader. I do talk a lot. Do I cut people off and answer the question? Again, the answer is yes. I'm just being honest with you. And let's talk about it. Week two, you're going to come back. Um, you're gonna, I'm going to do some of the things. You're going to help me with some of the things. And Brian's freaking out like, I don't know Greek. I don't know what to do. Okay, can you pray in front of people? Do you, yeah, okay. You're going to pray at the end of the study. Okay, I can do that. Okay, and then we'll talk about it. All right, Andrew, you got snacks. All right, week uh, four. I'm going to watch you do most of the things. Um, or I'm going to watch you do most of the things. You're going to do most of, if not all the things. This time, I'll do the prayer time. You do the study, and we'll talk. The fifth and final week is the best. I'm not even going to come to the life group. I know Brian and Andrew are freaking out. What do we do? Like Jesus and Paul, everything I've taught you. Oh, oh okay. So this time, you're going to do everything, and then you're going to ask one other person, a new person in our life group, to watch you, and the cycle begins. Think about this, church. Every five weeks, every five weeks, if you as a life group leader and as a life group participant wanted to be up for this challenge and to be intentional, you could reproduce yourself twice in a year, and we could exponentially grow this church relationship by relationship if we're willing to have these kinds of conversations. And it's up to us. It's not up to me. It's not up to our elders. It's not up to our staff. It's the willingness of people that are willing to invest in other people. And the tension is, but I like my leader. I like, and I, I get it. Like, I like them too. But Jesus didn't say, once you get five leaders and you're done growing the church. No, we have a mission to reach our community and, and, and the world. <laughs> We need more people. We need more people to get back into serving, back into leading life groups as we head and look and think towards Easter. Let me try this. You can correct me after the sermon. Let me try some pastoral math, okay? If we have 300 people at RCC, which is kind of what we were running before uh, lockdown, if 300 of us invested in one person this year, we would be a church of 600 next year. In year two, we'd be a church of 1,200. 
Year three, a church of 2,400. Year four, a church of 4,800. And year five, a church of 9,600 people. That is almost a third of the population in Salem, New Hampshire. Do we want to do that? Is Jesus kind of giving us a suggestion here? Or is he giving us a command? What does it look like for you to seriously consider the three to five names that the Spirit has given you, or needs to give you because you need to pray about it, to intentionally start investing in other people? Life group leaders, it's on us. It's okay to feel the weight of responsibility. This is a good weight to feel. It's on us. What would it look like if all of our groups, every calendar year, reproduced one person or one couple to lead a new life group the following year? Well, we always say generosity tells better stories. And if we're that generous relationally, we got stories that would fill up the kingdom for eternity. Let me pray. Oh God, thank you so much for the simplicity of the gospel and the simplicity of the way of the kingdom. Because I think you know the, de- the depths are of our depravity. And we almost want something to be complicated so we can say it's too hard. I'm going to walk away from it. But this seems so easy. It's too, almost too good to be true, Jesus. Is it possible, Jesus, that you're inviting RCC to reach a third of the Salem, New Hampshire population? Is it possible, Jesus, that you're calling us to do shoulder-to-shoulder life-on-life with other people that's not dependent on a building, a pandemic, a lockdown, but is 187% dependent on people willing to have conversations with one another? God, give us a vision. (laughs) Give us a vision bigger than ourselves when we think about our lives and we think about our church. Give us a vision that is so big, we have to be dependent upon you. Give us a vision of people that are willing to give their life away as you did. A vision of of a people willing to see people not as they are, but as the redemptive potential of what they could be if the gospel was believed and formed in their life. Give us a vision of living a life where we shift from solely information sharing to life-on-life sharing. And may we be a church that is obedient to your command to A, be unified, and B, to bear much fruit. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.